All right, good morning, Redemption Church. So good to be with you guys this morning. I love what Drew said that if you accomplish all of your New Year's resolutions but don't have love, you waste your year. You will not see that on TikTok. Anyways, uh, good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Tony. I'm one of our college pastors here. And we are continuing our series in the book of John. So if you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to turn to John chapter 11. It's 57 verses. So Maddie just read a few of them. But we're going to journey through this narrative and ask Jesus, what do you want us to teach or what do you want us to learn within this really important narrative of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? But before we do, uh, I don't know about you guys, but a constant theme in my life is being late for important moments. Okay, I don't know if this is your experience, but if you've ever been late for a wedding, you know the sheer anxiety that is pulsing through your veins. You're like, please let me beat the bride. Like you're thinking that. You're like, please no, not after the bride. Or uh, being late to a final. Some college students are still here. They got through finals. Congratulations. But when you're late to a final, it's like you have given up. You've given up on that class. When you go to a new church and you're like 30 minutes late to service, I mean, it's just, it's so much. I think all of us have experienced being late to important moments. But something we're going to see here in John chapter 11 is a really unique moment by which Jesus was late to an important moment. Now, this moment was a really important moment for Mary and Martha as their brother was about to die. It was a moment where they were going to see if Jesus actually was who he says he was to them. And for Lazarus, it was a life or death moment. On the brink of death, they are waiting for Jesus. And from every human standpoint, Jesus was late. And what we're going to see in this chapter that I think is going to be unsettling to us, that will build tension throughout the rest of the sermon, was he wasn't late on accident. He was late intentionally. What we find out in verse 6 is that he he delayed. He stayed where he was for an additional two days before coming to the aid of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And what this is going to do is open up a theological principle for us that we're going to have a conversation around this morning. Why is it that God's timing is always so much different than our preferences? Why does Jesus delay when we pray? All of us know what this is like to have prayers that we've given to God and ask him to come through, and yet he delays. Yet his timing is so different from ours. So the question that we're going to be asking this morning, Redemption Church, is why does God choose to delay when we pray and ask him for help? Okay, the first thing that we're going to do is for the next 15 minutes, I'm just going to sweep through this narrative, okay? We're just going to go all the narrative, we're going to highlight all the way through, and then we're going to end with three realities that I think will help us better understand the answer to that question. Okay, let's begin with the first part of the narrative, and that is the request in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay, so the setting of our story today is that there's a man named Lazarus that's incredibly ill. He's likely on the brink of death, or actually is on the brink of death, and Mary and Martha have sent to Jesus, saying, Jesus, would you come? You guys have to imagine this for a moment. This is an incredibly important moment for Mary and Martha. They're asking Jesus to come and help them in a moment of desperation and need because nothing else can save Lazarus. No one else can help, and so Mary and Martha are requesting that he come. It's a very sensitive moment and a very delicate moment for them. 
And as we enter into this story, I think what we're going to realize through this story is this whole story in John chapter 11 is often what it feels like to follow Jesus. That you will often find yourself in moments of desperation and need. In important moments where you're asking Jesus to come. Jesus, my mental health is really hurting. Would you come? Jesus, my family doesn't know you. Would you come? Jesus, I'm losing hope. Would you come? All of us will experience moments much like Mary and Martha are experiencing right now. And we will beg Jesus to come. Now that important of a moment is what makes the next part of the story shocking and a little bit confusing. And that is the delay. Verse 5 through 6 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, so this is a shocking response to the request of Mary and Martha with life and death on the line. What does Jesus do? He chooses to delay. He chooses to stay where he's at for an additional two days. And I just want to paint the geography a little bit here. Jesus is already a three days journey from Lazarus. If he would have left right away, it would have taken him three days to get to him. And yet he chooses to wait for two additional days. Okay, now immediately as we look at texts like this, alarm bells are going off in our minds. We're thinking to ourselves, holy cow, what could this mean, you know? Why is it that Jesus is choosing to delay? And I think in order to understand this, we need to read this sentence really carefully. Here's what this sentence says. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He loved them so. Because he loved them, he chose to delay. Not because he didn't love them, not because he didn't care, not because he didn't have a heart for broken and hurting people that he loved, but because he loved them, he chose to delay. We'll get back on why he chose to do this in a moment, but I think all of us know what this feels like, to be in moments by which we ask Jesus to come and his delay is sometimes two days, sometimes two months, sometimes two years, sometimes an entire lifetime, and we're asking the question, why is there space between our prayers and his provision? Why is there a gap between our needs and his fulfillment of those needs. And I think the space between can kind of lead to two different types of doubts or questions that we'll have of Jesus. Jesus, do you actually care? I am hurting and broken in desperate need. My family member is ill. Do you actually care? Or are you just some far away distant God who's a ruler but not a father? So that's doubt number one, do you care? Doubt number two is, do you actually have the power to heal? Are you actually sovereign, or are you someone who cares without the power? Those two doubts, we're going to see Jesus answer throughout this text. But the question remains, why would Jesus wait? It seems such an odd thing. Like, if you were to do this to your friend, it would be such a weird move. They are in desperate need of your help, and you say, okay, let me leave after 48 hours. You would never do that. So why does Jesus do that here? We see the explanation in chapter 3 of this story. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. That's because he and his disciples were talking, and they're like, oh, my gosh, is he sleeping? He's like, no, they died, okay? So it's, it's a story. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Okay, here's what Jesus says. I am glad I was not there so that 
you would believe. Okay, so here's where we're at in the narrative so far. Jesus chooses to wait for them because he loves them, for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus because he loves them, and then for the disciples so that they would believe. And what we find in this situation is a peculiar situation and yet is consistent with the entire narrative of Scripture, that God calls his people to wait on him for our belief. Think about the 40 years in the wilderness for the Israelites. 40 years is a long time to wait. 400 years of silence between Malachi and the Messiah. Two extra days here. What is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to create space so they would wait on him and it would aid their belief. And to the disciples and Mary and Martha, here's ultimately what he was trying to teach them. He was trying to teach them something that was true of himself. We're going to see in the next chapter, the revelation. Verse 25 says this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming in to the world. Okay, so here's what Jesus was trying to teach them to believe, that he is sovereign over life itself, that he has the power to resurrect, not just bodily, but spiritually. So to the doubt, why does he delay? Is it because he's not powerful enough? The answer is a resounding no. He holds the power over life itself. And his question to them is, do you believe? Do you see who I am? Okay, something that's happening here that I, I think is really important for us to understand is Jesus has a desire not just to teach Mary, Martha, and his disciples some theology about who he is, but they would actually believe in their bones who he is. Okay, so this is something what I think is the distinction between, you know, theology in the head and belief in the bones. That's sometimes what Jesus does to help us understand is he allows us to experience his love, not just be taught about his love. So theology in the head would be something like this. Someone could tell you, Matthew 28, that he will never leave you or forsake you. But you won't begin to believe that until everyone else in your life has departed you. You are unbelievably alone, and yet Jesus is with you. You can be taught 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that he is the great comforter. And yet you won't believe that until you're in moments of deep pain and the compassion of Jesus washes over you. That there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is good news but becomes viscerally beautiful when in your moments of deepest sin, the grace of Jesus washes over you. What Jesus was trying to do for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was show them not just teach them that he was a resurrection and a life, but show them who he was. That he was the God who controlled all the power of the world and life and death itself. So that addresses doubt number two. Is he powerful? The resounding answer is yes, he is powerful. But let's go to doubt number one. Does he care? Chapter five is this. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not also have opened the eyes of the blind man? also have kept this man from dying. Okay, so the question of does he care, the answer to the point of weeping, yes. Now I want you to imagine your Mary, Martha, and disciples with me, okay? At this time, the only types of kings, prophets, teachers that you've seen, they don't weep, they judge you for your condition. They don't actually come down to your experience. They have a scorned position of you. He is the savior of the world and he is weeping in front of them. You have to imagine 
the unbelievable moment of watching your Savior cry on your behalf. See, what we learn here is that Jesus has deep compassion. But here's the interesting theological thing that we need to understand here. Jesus already knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus. So why would he weep? Here's why. Although he knows the future hope, he has compassion for the present pain. And what's true for all of us, Redemption Church, is there are so many things in our lives right now that are incredibly painful that Jesus weeps for, not because he doesn't know our future. Our future is secured. Heaven will be a place where we're fully redeemed and renewed and remade in him. The future is secured, and yet, and yet, he still has compassion in the moment because he loves us. So in the space between your prayers and God's provision, you can trust that Jesus weeps with you and for you day by day, moment by moment. That's the compassion of Jesus. But what I love about this story is he doesn't just have compassion, but he comes through. So let's look at the climax of the story and the provision. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his feet wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. After two days of waiting, three days of travel, four days of Lazarus being dead in a tomb, Jesus actually resurrects Lazarus in front of their eyes. They get to experience and believe that he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus comes through. Okay, so before we get into kind of the different points or whatever that we need to understand, I don't know about you guys, but when I read texts like this, I, I love thinking about the ways that Jesus comes through for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then I start getting sad. And I'm not going to lie, guys. I've been a little discouraged prepping this text this week, partly because I was just thinking back to all the different prayers, all the different hopes, all of the different requests of Jesus that he hasn't answered yet. And I was losing heart a little bit and asking Jesus, will you come through for us again? And as I was thinking that, quite literally this morning, guys, this is very exciting. This morning, I get a text from one of my friends who was actually in our campus group back in college, which was six years ago. Feels like 40 years ago, but it was six years ago. Six years ago, he was in our small group, and he would sit down and have conversations with us about Jesus. And his story is that he came from China as um, a transfer student. He had almost no access to the gospel in China. He came to the United States and then actually got plugged into Salt Company, joined our small group, and just was starting to build a theology. And I remember going out with him for lunch after lunch after lunch, explaining to him the beauty of the gospel, but he never received it. And I remember praying on the car ride home after every single one of those lunches, Jesus, would you, would you bring this friend home? Would he know who you are? And it's been about five years since I've seen this guy. And functionally, I'd forgotten about him. It had been years since I'd actually prayed for him. And this morning, he sent me this text. I think I've got it. I blocked it out for some things, but he sent me this text this morning. And I saw it, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. But six years later, six years, when I had stopped praying, stopped pursuing him, stopped checking in on him, six years later, he has come to know Jesus in a miraculous way. And so... Here's kind of my hope as we enter into this week together as a church family. Honestly, six years is an incredibly long time. 
And my hope is that for some of us in this room, you guys are holding on to prayers and requests of Jesus where it has been six years, 10 years, 20 years, and our hope is that we would see the beauty of Jesus in the midst of the space between. Okay, so that's the story. What are the three things I think we need to hold on to as a church? I'm gonna rapid fire these. It's gonna be pretty quick in order to better understand and believe in the space between. The first one is his compassion shows his love for us. Okay, verse 36 says that as he weeped for them, the Jews were like, man, this guy loves these people. And there's a very real sense by which in that moment, Mary and Martha are looking at Jesus, weeping for the death of Lazarus and saying, man, my Savior deeply loves me. He has compassion for me in ways I could never understand or conceptualize, and yet he's right here weeping for me right now. I think there's a sense by which in every Christian's life, sometimes what we need is not circumstances to change, but the compassion of Christ. Sometimes we need to be able to say, Jesus, I am hurting, and yet I see your compassion for me. The next thing we see is that his provision is often greater than our prayers. Okay, guys, this is a very fun, this is very fun. I love this part. Think about this. Mary and Martha initially asked Jesus, would you come, his presence, and would you heal my brother? And yet what they could have never imagined that he would do through the death of their brother was not just bodily resurrect Lazarus, but have it be symbolic of the spiritual resurrection for billions of people to come. This is the miraculous nature of Jesus that oftentimes he gives us something way better than we could actually ever pray for. I think in the experience as a Christian, I think back to my life, holy cow, if Jesus would have answered all my prayers, I'd be a mess right now, okay? Oh my gosh, talk about just horrible life. Like that's what would be true. I have prayed for some ridiculous things that would not have been good for my future. And yet I can say confidently that Jesus has come through for me in way better ways than I could have ever imagined. Now, that doesn't mean that your life gets easier. It doesn't mean that you necessarily get wealthier or healthier, all that kind of stuff. But it means that Jesus has a providential plan that he's enacting in every single one of our lives. And often, the providence is actually better than our prayers. The way he comes through for us is often better than we could ever imagine. And the last thing that we see is that his glory is the goal. Verse 4 says this. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. To redemption, there's 57 verses in this story. But this is the one that matters the most. The point of the resurrection, the point of the power, the point of the presence, the point of the waiting. Every single one of those things were leading to one thing, which is the glory of Jesus. And this is what's true about our lives. The suffering and pain in your life is not senseless. It's not random. God is not delaying because he doesn't care about you or because he's not powerful enough. Every single moment in our lives is reflecting the glory of God. And this is really important and yet hard to believe because it doesn't feel loving at times when we're suffering and in pain and God is saying it is for his glory. Redemption Church, here's why that's so loving for us. Is that his greatest glory in our lives is our greatest good. 
and if how God gets the glory in our lives is through our weakness, our brokenness, our dependence, our need for him, the praying on our knees, the space between, if those things lead to the glory of God, then it is for our greatest good that he would allow us to experience those things. See, the beauty of this story is the compassion of Christ, the way that he came through for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Think about that. He could have just snapped a finger. He never had to show any emotion towards us, but how great is it that our God would cry for us? His provision for them. Literally a couple chapters ago, he said the words, go and your son would be healed. He can use his words to heal them, but yet he wanted to be in person, resurrect Lazarus from the dead so they wouldn't just think about theology, but they would believe in their bones the love that Jesus has for them. And the beauty and the grace and the kindness of the glory of God. That when Jesus is most glorified in us is when we get to experience the true joy we were made for. That's the narrative arc of John chapter 11. It is that in the space between often we get to experience the glory of Jesus. One last chapter. One last chapter in the story and then we're going to wrap it up. And that is the very final part of John chapter 11, the prophetic sacrifice. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to him, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation also, but to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day forward, they made plans to put him to death. Okay, we are going to continue our John series but this is the end of the public ministry of Jesus. From this point on, the death threats become very real. The plans begin to put in place. Why? Because this man, this God-man, had just resurrected a person from dead. He has now created so much strife that the religious leaders are seeing him as a scapegoat that needed to be killed so that the entire nation wouldn't be swallowed up by Rome or given to a different authority. So this is the end of Jesus's public ministry, and this is a prophetic, prophetic vision of the death of Jesus. See, Caiaphas had believed that Jesus would die to preserve the Jewish nation, but God had planned that Jesus would die to not just preserve a nation, but to create a whole new nation of people, not defined by heritage or ethnicity, but defined by allegiance to the king. And so what Jesus has done is he's actually fulfilled this prophecy in a way that Caiaphas couldn't have imagined and inaugurated the kingdom of God here. And so redemption, as we think about the three things we just talked about, the compassion of Jesus, the providence of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, where better is that displayed than on the crucifixion of Christ? See, as Jesus died for us, he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The compassion of Christ was fully evident on the cross. Think about the provision of Jesus. Mary and Martha could have never expected Jesus to raise their brother from the dead. And yet we get to experience the provision of Christ that we too in this room right now, 2,000 years later, if we believe in Jesus like Lazarus, we can be raised from death into marvelous life and the glory of Jesus. No better place to gaze upon the glory of Christ and on the crucifixion of Christ. And as he raised Lazarus from the dead, he raises us from the dead. 
and he raised himself from the dead three days later. So redemption, my hope for us today is that we would see and zone in on verse six. He stayed there for an additional two days and our hope would not be lost in the space between, but we would trust that the compassion, provision, and glory of Christ is what he's trying to make real to us and we would believe it in our bones. Let me pray that be true for our church family. Father, I love stories like this because it reminds us of how good you've been to us. Man, I'm just imagining what it would be like to be Mary and Martha watching their Savior weep, watching their Savior show his compassion for them and his love for them and his care for them, his desire for them, and then watching their Savior raise a dead man from the dead. After four days in a tomb, the stone would be rolled away and Lazarus would walk out. I'm imagining what it would be like to watch those moments back to back and then realize that their Savior himself would die, that he too would be buried, that he too would have a stone over his grave, and yet three days later, the Almighty God would roll away that stone and he would resurrect himself. Father, as a Christian, one of the hardest things to believe is that you're in the space between, that it's not a senseless suffering that we're enduring, it's not a senseless delay, but it's intentional and purposeful that the glory of Christ would be made real in us, that the compassion of Christ and the providence of Christ would rule in our hearts, and that space between would not be an empty space, but a space filled by your cross. So Father, as we struggle with our doubts, do you care? Are you powerful? Are you with me or are you against me? Would we remember that on the cross, you cared. You cared for our sins as you rose from the dead and you're powerful. You nailed our sins to that cross. So Father, we trust that. And as we worship, I pray that we would gaze upon the glory of Christ on the cross. In your name we pray, amen.